Our text for this morning is 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. Peter writes, In this you rejoice, though for now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. All right. Thank you, Janet, for reading that. Welcome, everyone. If you're visiting today, uh, my name is Scott. I'm one of the six elders here. Pastor Mark is out of town this week, having, or this Sunday at least, um, having some special time with two of his children in the Nashville area. So he'll be back next week to pick up and continue in First Peter. Thankful to have the opportunity to share last week and this week on a special passage. You know, last week look, we looked at Peter's way of describing this awesome salvation that God has established for us. Peter starts off here in verse 6, or continues, I should say. It's beginning for us, but he's already into his letter. Peter continues in verse 6 by saying, In this you rejoice. So all the fantastic benefits that God shares with us, which we went over last week, such as we were born, he caused us to be born again into a living hope, to an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, and it's kept in heaven. All those things, Peter says, it's, let's rejoice in that. But it's almost as if Peter anticipates that some people are going to say, yeah, but you know, following Christ is hard. It's not easy all the time. It doesn't feel very hopeful right now. That inheritance seems like it's way down the road, a long way off. Peter understands, so he pivots a little bit after just announcing those great things to us. You know, Peter knows full well that we endure some tough, distressing times in our life. He almost drowned in a storm trying to walk on water. He wanted more than anything to stand by his teacher's side until the very end. And on the night that Jesus was arrested, the first three opportunities he had, he denied him. Then he watched as this man, who he placed all of his hope in, was crucified right before his eyes. Can you imagine the disappointment in those first couple nights while Jesus was still in the tomb that Peter and all of the disciples must have felt? Three years. We've been with him. He was our great hope, and now he's gone. Then after Jesus ascended to heaven, Peter was imprisoned for his continued support of the resurrected Jesus. So Peter experienced plenty of painful, fearful difficult times in his life. So after talking about how God is committed to guarding an inheritance for us and committed to guarding us for that inheritance, Peter brings up the role of trials in preparing us for this great future outcome. So look, guys, we're going to go through and explore some real-life things today. I mean, Peter touches on it here. We're going to talk about composition of what real faith looks like. We're also going to look at why we sometimes face intense times of distress in our life. 
These are hard things. May the Spirit of God lead us today. We're going to look at it under three points. We're going to look at the nature of our trials, the purpose of our trials, and the way through our trials. First, the nature of our trials. And remember, Peter is speaking to believers here. He's, he's addressed his letter to the elect, right, that are spread around. So he's, he's talking to believers. However, if you're human, you're going to face trials, right? So, so the nature of the trials are the same for believers or unbelievers. Where we get into the differences are, is the purpose of them and how we go through them. Peter says here in verse 6 that our trials are brief. He says for a little while. Sometimes minutes seem like hours and hours seems like days and days seem like years. But the reality is that our trials are temporary in nature. Most trials last for a few hours or a few days, like the passing of a thunderstorm, right? The one we got last night came in with a fury, lots of wind, but it's often short-lived, and then we emerge on the other side. Now, that's not to say that some of us don't face trials that last for years, and some may have a distressing situation that lasts for most of your lifetime, but there will come a day when it ends. Unlike our inheritance, our trials do not go on and on forever. So that is why Peter can write in truth that our trials last a little time, because he's comparing it back to our unperishing inheritance. Eighty years compared to endless years. So yes, 80 years is a short time. Even though the suffering may be intense and disheartening for long years, it seems short after thousands upon thousands upon thousands of years of enjoying such a majestic salvation. You know, we humans in our fragility, we have a desire for comfort. We would like to avoid trials at all costs. I remember uh, one of the former elders here a long time ago, John Kellogg. I heard him say multiple times, he said, that man is just trying to get to his moment of death as comfortably as possible. You know, when you boil it down to it, aren't many of us looking for a way to the end in as comfortable of a way as possible? It's natural for us. But notice Peter says next in this that after he said, though for a little while, he says, if necessary. You've likely heard the expression related to storms in life that you're either in a storm right now or you're coming out of a storm or you're about to enter into a storm. That phrase speaks to the reality that storms or trials are prevalent in life. But this phrase, if necessary, what's that about? You know, necessary means required to be done. So who requires trials? I mean, not me. I feel like I'd be fine without them, right? Maybe you would too. Could it be that God requires us to go through trials? I mean, does God require believers to go through trials? Does he think it's necessary for someone to go through cancer? Or for someone to go through a painful divorce? Or is it necessary to mourn the death of a close loved one? I mean, does God determine for someone to be in that difficult work or school situation? My best answer is yes, sometimes, sometimes. And here's what I mean. We know from the totality of Scripture that God never commands us to sin, nor does he ever approve of our sinning. He also does not delight in us being in pain. 
Some people enjoy liking to watch the world burn. Remember the prophet Jonah? He set up his chair on the cliff, and he wanted to watch God rain down on Nineveh, right? Some people, that's something they like to do, but not with God. God doesn't derive joy from us being in distress. However, God does allow and sometimes even wills that some of our sufferings play out in our life. Clearly, all sufferings are not willed by God in the sense that he's the author of every instance that I suffer. Remember the story we looked at last week, right, towards the end? When Jesus pulled Simon aside and he said, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you that your faith may remain and when you have turned again, that you may strengthen your brothers. That was not God authoring that. He did allow Satan to play that role in his life. Also, remember Job, right? Satan came and asked permission to stir up Job and torment him. God wasn't the author of those things, but he did allow them to happen. But there are, other some tr- there are other trials in our life that are designed by God, right? The Israelites exiled to Syria and to Babylonia, right? Their Babylonian ex- exiles, they were planned out by God. I mean, the prophets spent lots of time. There's lots of scripture committed to talking about this is going to happen to you, Israelites, if you don't repent and turn around. And then it played out exactly like that. Look at the path to Jesus on the cross. We cannot say that God just allowed his son to suffer. It was God's will for Jesus to go to the cross. We have lots of prophecy. We know that the type of death from the Old Testament, the type of death Jesus was going to die, we know that one of his disciples was going to betray him. We even know the cost from Old Testament scripture that this was going to happen in, right? God willed these things for in Jesus' life. And yes, Jesus chose them as well, thankfully. But then there are other trials that we go through that aren't necessary. You see, it says if necessary. So that if is there to communicate that sometimes we go through things that aren't necessary, right? They're probably our own doing. If I were to sit here and bang my head hard enough on this podium, I could get a concussion from it, Right? That wouldn't be God's plan, or I wouldn't even say God allowed. I mean, I guess you could say God allowed, you know, he allowed for all of it. But it certainly wouldn't have been his plan for that to happen. But it would be my own ignorant choice that I would have to deal with the, the consequential soreness and after effects of a concussion. That would entirely be my own doing. So we must recognize whether the trial is allowed or directed by God, whether the trial is necessary or unnecessary, that all of them are governed by a sovereign God. If we believe that God is in control of all things, then our sufferings and our trials is a thing that fits under all things. Because God is sovereign, God guides our sufferings and distresses, distresses to produce a specific outcome that he has in mind for us as believers. Now, Peter elaborates a lot on suffering in this book, and we're going to come back to this point. He spends a lot of verses in this, and we'll look forward to Mark and maybe other elders sharing in the future on that. If God requires sufferings in our life, then above the plans of evil men, 
above the strategy of the devil is the purpose and design of God over that suffering, overarching it all. The brothers of Joseph meant selling for Joseph to traders en route to Egypt for bad. God meant it for good. The devil meant for crucifying Jesus to be his victory. Yet God worked it out to be our victory. Next, Peter says that our trials grieve us. They inflict real pain and sadness in our lives. Some people experience chronic physical pain in their lives, a body part that always produces discomfort. Some people experience deep emotional pain. The unexpected loss of a loved one can overwhelm any of us with immense sadness, sadness that never seems to dull in some respects. The ending of a significant relationship, such as a divorce or being cut off from a close family member, it can cause heartache that's hard to recover from. There are mental trials which produce lots of stress in our life, right? If we could be under a financial hardship that's causing us to worry. We could carry anxieties over the future for our children and grandchildren in this world that generates fear in us. If a trial is worth its salt, then it's going to produce some kind of distress in our lives. And some of these sufferings last for years, even after the immediate threat of that trial is over. You think of soldiers. They can be removed from the battlefield, but there's sometimes lingering impact in their lives from what they experienced while they were there. You think of children. They could be removed from that abusive situation, but there's sometimes, most of the time, there will be lots and years of things to unwind from what they went through. The final description of trials that Peter gives us here is that they are various kinds. Life comes at us in a variety of ways. No one living has the exact same experience as anyone else. And even if we did, we'd likely choose to understand or interpret those experiences in different ways. So we've already looked at, in some of these descriptions, there's already variety, right? They last different lengths of time. We have different levels of grief associated with our trials. We've talked about physical, mental, emotional trials. There's also trials of our own sinful choices, right? Self-inflicted trials. And sometimes we put ourselves in difficult positions by the choices we've made and we must face those consequences. Sometimes there's a trial that, that, that's caused by swift or drastic change that causes us to lose our safety or security. That can be troubling. Sometimes we go through trials where we feel trapped and there's just no way of escape. And some trials happen because we live in a fallen world full of sickness, disease, and other fallen people. So the nature of the trials Peter describes, this is the types of things we're going to go through in life so does God have purpose in any of this, right? If it is necessary, you would assume God has a purpose in it. And he does. 
what is God's purpose in these trials? Peter then transitions into that in verse 7. He says, for one, it tests the genuineness of our faith. It reveals to us how strong our faith is. How do we know if our love and trust in God is growing larger and larger? Well, trials are a helpful tool God uses to reveal that and reveal our faith progress to us. Trials allowed or designed by God reveal how real or sincere our faith is. Peter talks about refining gold in this verse. You know, gold is a precious metal, but many times there are impure or invaluable things that are mixed in with that chunk of gold. So what you can do is you can heat up the gold very hot so that it melts down into a liquid form. And that liquid is very heavy, just like the gold is. And so it would sink to the, to the bottom, and the impure thing will rise to the top. It will show you how much other stuff is embedded in your piece of gold when you heat it up like that. Our trials, similarly, show us what kind of other stuff is wrapped in with our faith. What doubts do we have? What fears do we have? What complaints do we have? What disobedience do we have that's intertwined with and diluting our faith in God? Trials also strengthen us. And strengthen our faith. So not only do they just shine a light to expose what kind of faith we have, but Trials themselves serve as a strengthening agent to our faith. When we emerge from a time of pain, our confidence and appreciation for God often increase. You know, Peter went through his trial that night of denying Jesus. But later in Acts, when Peter himself is arrested, he was instructed not to preach about Jesus. And he told them, I'll face whatever consequences you have for me because I must obey God rather than men. You see, his faith to suffer, the one night he was unwilling to do that with Jesus, a couple months or years later, he was willing to suffer because his belief in Jesus had measurably grown. Back to our gold illustration. So we've heated up our gold into a liquid. And we see the impurities floating on the top of it. Then you can use an acid to pour into that gold and dissolve those impurities that present themselves to the top. So when your gold then cools off, what you have remaining is more genuine and valuable gold than what you had before you put the fire to it. And if you repeat that process over and over and over again, then eventually you will have nothing but pure gold left. So with each trial that we face, there's a little more doubt that's removed. There's a little more of our complaints that fall away. Hopefully, our desire for disobeying God weakens each time we emerge. Our faith gets stronger and stronger when we come out of trials. And there's a third purpose Peter mentions here for our trials. It leads to praise, honor, and glory when Jesus returns. 
So as we successfully endure trials, listen, this sword is double-edged. When we successfully endure trials and the challenge of our faith, and when we hold firm to God, it leads us to rewards granted to us by Jesus when we go to him or when he comes back for us. Remember the parable that Jesus told, right, with the master that issued out the different talents, right? And the, and the last one came back to him and said, you gave me this, and I made this out of it. And what did the master say? Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your reward. Our faith can increase our well done. Our well dones that we're about to hear from Jesus one day. But the opposite's also true. Not only is God honoring us or praising us for our faith, but our faith, strengthened by the distresses that we overcome, will cause us to honor and glorify and praise God more appropriately in heaven. Even though that we couldn't see Jesus here on earth, the testing and purifying of our faith is deepening our love for him, our belief in him, and our joy in him. Trials sharpen our appreciation for God, which results in us giving more praise and honor to God. It works both ways. So our trials, then in one sense, issue a reward to us when we emerge them faithfully, but it also links us closer to God. So now that we know the nature of our trials that we face and a little bit about why we face them, does Peter have any suggestions here in this passage to help us get through our suffering or distressing times? In short, the suggestion, he says, is to draw near to Jesus. Now, it's interesting, one of the things you've got to remember when he, and how he writes in verse 8, he says, though you do not see him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. Jesus, or Peter had the privilege of actually seeing and being around Jesus, right? So one of his go-tos when he was in a trial was, just like, I'm just going to go stand near Jesus, right? It just feels better or seems better or he'll take care of it. I've seen him do it multiple times. But now Jesus has ascended in heaven, right? And so Peter doesn't have that luxury anymore, and the people he's writing to don't either. But we can still draw near to him. And Peter suggests here three components of faith with, which work together at the same time and amplify each other that can be a great way to make it through trials. The first one is love. We can be building our love for Jesus. Love in this sense and how it's used means to take a deep interest in or preference in someone. So when we love Jesus, we value his character and we find him to be important to us. We desire to spend time here with those whom we love. And since there's no place that we can go to escape the presence and reach of God, then wherever we find ourselves... When we are going through the trial, we can actively be loving Jesus. So when you're at a place where you're worrying over a specific situation, and that situation's entirely consuming your mind, are you continuing to take a deep interest in Jesus? Can you cut through the worry that you have by loving God, by concentrating on reading His Word, by committing yourself to times of prayer, it is possible to prefer to pray Jesus 
instead of dwell in our fear over any situation. The second way, Peter says, is through our belief. When the Bible speaks of belief related to Jesus, it means that we accept God as being true or certain. So as we are believing God, our confidence and trust in him is rising. This is where we get to apply what we learn about God from his word. For instance, Scripture tells me that God's never going to leave me or forsake me. Do I realize and hold on to that truth in my loneliest moments? Scripture tells me that God is working all things together for my good. When I'm going through personal sickness or a loved one's going through personal sickness, am I able to hold on to that? Is there a time when I can sense the goodness of God, even if it's subtle, does that resonate in my heart when I'm on that journey of sickness or watching my loved one go on that journey. The final way through the trial that Peter suggests for us is through rejoicing. Rejoicing is showing great delight or finding pleasure in something. If, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you've no doubt heard the phrase, count it all joy, my brother, when you face trials, Right? Or later on in this book, Peter says we're supposed to rejoice in our sufferings. Is the Bible really telling us to be like, yes, that hurts so good. Keep it coming. No. No, the joy is not focused on the pain or the suffering, but it's focused on something beyond that. Right? Remember, Peter says that, that our trials are the source of great grief in our life. So what's the source of our joy? Our source, source of joy is looking past the trials to the reward that's on the other side. Remember when Jesus was on the Sermon on the Mount and he goes through the Beatitudes. And he gets to the end of the Beatitudes and he says, Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward in heaven is great. Has anyone else read that and found that? What an interesting combination Jesus used there. I mean, the Lutheran in me has a hard time seeing Jesus say, leap for joy, right? But let's go back to the first phrase that we looked at today in verse 6. Peter says, in this you rejoice. We rejoice when we go through trials because the great things that we talked about last week, like being born again into a living hope, being guaranteed to receive a tremendous inheritance, they're the backdrop for our trial that we go through. We recognize that God has a purposeful design in that suffering, and it produces something in our faith that's going to carry us forward to the end result, which is the salvation of our souls. Peter says here that this reality should produce such a profound joy in us that it's hard to express in words. He says, rejoice with joy that is inexpressible. So when our faith begins, or when our faith brings us through a trial, there's a joy that rises up in us that's associated with belonging to God. 
There's a joy that rises up in us because it, we're proving to ourselves that God is with us and that he's for us. It's just very interesting that Jesus uses the term rejoice in that day and leap for joy for behold, your reward is great in heaven. Peter says rejoice with a joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory. And Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. And he says later, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. So we don't lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self's being renewed day by day, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Are we understanding? Peter, James, I mean, Peter, Jesus, and Paul are communicating similar thoughts. They're saying there's something spectacular here. Yes, we go through hard trials. But if we can see to the backdrop behind those trials, there's a trusting Savior. There's a glorious reward. About the best thing I can compare it to is, you know, when you know someone and love someone and you get a present for them that you know is going to be a home run, what is the thing that you look forward to the most? Watching the expression on their face when they open that gift. Jesus is that person that knows what is coming for us is really good, and we're really going to like it. So even though we can't see Jesus with our natural eyes, when we exercise our faith through loving him, believing in him, and rejoicing in him, while we go through suffering, those three things, they're individually increasing in us, but cumulatively, they're increasing our faith. And as our faith increases in God, so does the value to us of our end reward. So I'll leave you with this. Where's your sight line? Where is your sight line as you're going through your trial? Is it looking at the violent waves that are right at your feet? Is it looking at the wind and the rain that's battering you and and causing you to be unstable? Or is your sight line focused on our wonderful Savior standing securely on top of the stormy water? Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for these words that Peter wrote. We thank you for your words and the beatitude. We thank you for Paul's words and the encouragement that they are to us, Lord. We know that, Lord, as we live this life, we go through times that are hard and distressing. We go through different trials, Lord. We're thankful that you are a faithful Savior. You're a good Savior, as Peter will tell us later in this, in this letter, and we can entrust ourselves to you. And we do that right now. We entrust you, ourselves to you, Lord. Lord, we ask for your help, Lord, as we go through these trials, Lord. We, 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 ha- we ask as they expose things in our life, that 
conflict with our faith or, or where we want our faith to be. Lord, give us the courage and ability to, to remove those things and those impurities from our faith. As we go through these trials, Lord, may, may our love increase, may our belief in you increase, may our joy in you increase as we are on our way to obtaining the outcome of our salvation, Lord. We look forward to that time. Amen. Amen.